European Hearts Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 38, Issue 19, Focus Issue on Gender, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucher. Gender Issues in Arrhythmias, From Atrial Fibrillation to CRT and Arrhythmogenic Ventricular Cardiomyopathy. Gender is increasingly recognized as an important modulator of disease presentation and outcome, as well as for the perception of symptoms and the disease process by the treating physician. Sex hormones importantly affect body function, the risk to develop cardiac disease and natural outcome, as well as that of interventions. For instance, in atrial fibrillation, women have a higher risk of stroke. Indeed, out of a maximum of 9 points, CHA2DS2VASC score, female gender is 1. Furthermore, and hence distribution volume among other factors, drugs may act differently in women, and with anticoagulants their bleeding risk is also increased. The risk of bleeding is particularly high in patients with coronary artery disease and atrial fibrillation undergoing stenting. This focus issue on gender issues in cardiac patients therefore begins with a current opinion on the management of antithrombotic therapy after bleeding in patients with coronary artery disease and or atrial fibrillation, expert consensus paper of the European Society of Cardiology Working Group on Thrombosis, by Sigrun Halvorsen and colleagues from the ESC Working Group on Thrombosis. The authors note that although several recommendations have been published dealing with the acute management of bleeding in patients treated with antithrombotic drugs, there is an unmet need for guidance on how to manage antithrombotic therapy after bleeding has occurred, particularly now that with idarukizumab, a blocking antibody against dabigatran, has become available and antagonists for other NOACs are in development. Patients with recent bleeding have been excluded from most randomized trials of antithrombotic therapy and rigorous evidence to inform decisions is scarce. While waiting for observational and randomized data to accrue, this consensus paper offers a European perspective on managing antithrombotic therapy after bleeding in patients with coronary artery disease and or atrial fibrillation, including which drugs to stop, which to restart, and when. Over two decades after the introduction of cardiac resynchronization therapy into clinical practice, approximately 30% of candidates continue to fail to respond to this highly effective treatment of drug refractory heart failure. In a clinical review article entitled Avoiding Non-Responders to Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy, a Practical Guide, Jean-Claude Daubert and colleagues from the CHRU slash Centre Cardio-Pneumologique in Rennes, France, note that since the causes of this non-response are multifactorial, it will require multidisciplinary efforts to overcome the problem. Progress has thus far been slowed by several factors, ranging from a lack of consensus regarding the definition of non-response to technological limitations to the delivery of therapy. The authors critically review the various endpoints that have been used in landmark clinical trials and cardiac resynchronization therapy and the variability in response rates that has been observed because of these different investigational designs, 
different sample populations enrolled, and different means of therapy delivered, including new means of multi-site and left ventricular endocardial simulation. Precise recommendations are offered regarding the optimal device programming, use of telemonitoring, and optimization of management of heart failure. Potentially reversible causes of non-response to cardiac resynchronization therapy are reviewed, with emphasis on loss of biventricular stimulation due to competing arrhythmias. The prevention of non-response to cardiac resynchronization therapy is essential to improve the overall performance of this treatment and lower its risk-benefit ratio. These objectives require collaborative efforts by the heart failure team, the electrophysiologists, and the cardiac imaging experts. Previous studies have identified sex disparities in the use of cardiac resynchronization therapy and implantable cardioverter defibrillators, although the basis of underutilization in women remains poorly understood. In a research manuscript, Increasing Sex Differences in the Use of Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy with or Without Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator, Neil A. Chatterjee and colleagues from the Massachusetts General Hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts, USA, assessed gender differences in cardiac resynchronization therapy use with or without implantable cardioverter defibrillators. In their cross-sectional study using the National Inpatient Sample Database, they identified 311,009 patients undergoing cardiac resynchronization therapy between 2006 and 2012. When compared to men, women undergoing cardiac resynchronization therapy implantation were more likely to have more than or equal to three predictors of cardiac resynchronization therapy response and were less likely to have more than or equal to three predictors of reduced implantable cardioverter defibrillators efficacy. Despite this, men were significantly more likely to undergo cardiac resynchronization therapy with implantable cardioverter defibrillators as the type of cardiac resynchronization therapy, i.e. 88.6 versus 80.1%. Compared to those with the greatest likelihood of cardiac resynchronization therapy response, those with the least likelihood of cardiac resynchronization therapy response had significantly decreased odds of 0.27 of receiving a cardiac resynchronization defibrillator implant. Of note, odds were lower in women compared to men. Furthermore, the difference in the percentage of cardiac resynchronization defibrillator implant in men versus women increased over the study period. The authors conclude that in this large contemporary cohort, sex differences in cardiac resynchronization defibrillator implantation were inversely related to predicted cardiac resynchronization therapy efficacy, and worse, this trend increased over time. Future efforts to narrow the gap in cardiac resynchronization defibrillator implantation in men and women may help to better align device selection with those most likely to benefit. These clinically relevant results are further discussed in an editorial by Noel Barry Metz from the Cedar Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California, USA. In patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation, 
it is uncertain whether the higher risk of ischemic stroke in women, reported in some, but not all, studies, is due to residual confounding or a true phenomenon. In their manuscript, Revisiting Sex Differences in Outcomes in Non-Valvular Atrial Fibrillation, a Population-Based Cohort Study, Christelle Renou and colleagues from McGill University in Montreal, Canada, assessed this association using standard time-fixed and more accurate time-dependent adjustment for confounders. Using the computerized databases of the Régie de l'Assurance Maladie du Québec, the authors identified a cohort of 147,622 with non-valvular atrial fibrillation during 2000-2009. During a mean follow-up of 2.9 years, 11,326 patients had a stroke, giving an incidence rate of 2.6 per 100 person years. Using time-fixed adjustment for confounders, women had a moderately higher risk of ischemic stroke than men, with a hazard ratio of 1.16. However, matching age and using time-dependent adjustment for confounders, women were not at higher risk of stroke than men. Indeed, surprisingly, mortality and bleeding rates were lower in women compared with men. Thus, in non-valvular atrial fibrillation, Contrary to the currently used CHA2-DS2-VASC score, women do not appear to be at higher risk of thromboembolic events compared to men. The small increased risk reported in previous studies may be related to residual confounding, from insufficient adjustment for differences in age in both genders. These provocative findings are thoughtfully discussed in an editorial by A. John Cam from St. George's, University of London, UK. The arrhythmogenic ventricular cardiomyopathy is characterized by a preferential, but not exclusive, fibrofatty infiltration of the right ventricular myocardium, leading to arrhythmias and potentially sudden cardiac death. In the European Cardiomyopathy Pilot Registry of the Euro-Observational Research Programme of the European Society of Cardiology, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy was the most common cardiomyopathy, followed by dilated cardiomyopathy and arrhythmogenic ventricular cardiomyopathy, with restrictive cardiomyopathy being the rarest form. A lot of progress has been made in family screening, diagnosis, and management of arrhythmogenic ventricular cardiomyopathy. The most important risk factors to develop the disease in genetically prone subjects are male gender and competitive sports. From the beginning, it was noted that male patients develop the disease earlier and present with more severe phenotypes as compared to females. In their research article, Sex hormones affect the outcome in arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy slash dysplasia from a stem cell-derived cardiomyocyte-based model to clinical biomarkers of disease outcome. Firat Duru and colleagues from the University of Zurich in Switzerland hypothesized that serum levels of sex hormones may contribute to major arrhythmic cardiovascular events in such patients. The serum levels of five sex hormones and their binding globulins, high-sensitivity troponin T, pro-brain natriuretic peptide, cholesterol, triglycerides, insulin, and glucose, 
were measured in 54 patients, of whom 72% were male. About half of the patients experienced major arrhythmic events. Interestingly, total and free testosterone levels were significantly increased in males with major arrhythmias as compared to those with a favourable outcome, whereas estradiol was significantly lower in females with arrhythmic events as compared to those with no major arrhythmias. Increased testosterone levels remained independently associated with major arrhythmic events in males. Even after adjusting for age, body mass index, task force criteria, ventricular function, and desmosomal mutation status. Furthermore, in induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes obtained from patients with arrhythmogenic ventricular cardiomyopathy, testosterone worsened and estradiol improved cellular events associated with the disease process, such as cardiomyocyte apoptosis and lipogenesis. Thus, Elevated serum testosterone levels in males and decreased estradiol levels in females are independently associated with major arrhythmic events in arrhythmogenic ventricular cardiomyopathy and cellular mechanisms of the disease process. Therefore, determining the levels of sex hormones may be useful for risk stratification and may open a new window for preventive interventions. Pregnancy is a gender-specific condition that is associated with marked changes in the cardiovascular system that may be particularly relevant in women with valvular or congenital heart disease. Often, anticoagulation is required under these conditions, a prophylactic intervention that may interfere with the growth of a fetus. In their meta-analysis, Anticoagulation for Pregnant Women with Mechanical Heart Valves a systematic review and meta-analysis. Rohan D'Souza and colleagues from the Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, Canada, investigated maternal and fetal outcomes in women with mechanical heart valves treated with vitamin K antagonists in those with first trimester heparin followed by vitamin K antagonists as a sequential treatment with low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin during pregnancy. With vitamin K antagonists, sequential treatment and low molecular weight heparin, maternal mortality occurred in 0.9% and 2.9%, thromboembolic complications in 2.7%, 5.8% 5 and 8.7%, live births in 64.5%, 79.9% and 92.0%, and anticoagulant-related embryopathy or fetopathy in 2.0%, 1.4%, and 0% respectively. With unfractionated heparin use throughout pregnancy, 11.2% suffered thromboembolic complications. Fetal loss and adverse events occurred with first trimester warfarin doses below or equal 5 mg per day, although there were more live births, i.e. 83.6% versus 43.9%, and fewer fetal anomalies, i.e. 2.3% versus 12.4%, with lower doses than with warfarin above 5 mg per day. D'Souza and colleagues conclude that vitamin K antagonists are associated with fewest maternal complications, but also with fewest live births. Thus, sequential treatment does not eliminate anticoagulant-related fetal 
or neonatal adverse events. Low molecular weight heparin is associated with the highest number of live births. The safety of unfractionated heparin throughout pregnancy and first trimester warfarin below or equal 5 mg per day therefore remains unconfirmed. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its readers.